Welcome to my podcast, the first of 2021, and I wish you a happy and healthy new year. What better way to kickstart 2021 but by having a frank conversation about carbs, gaining weight, and losing blood sugar control? My guest for today is an award-winning general practitioner, Dr. David Unwin, known for pioneering the low-carb approach in the UK. In 2015, Dr. Unwin was made a UK Royal College of General Practitioners expert clinical advisor for his dedicated efforts within the area of patient communication and type 2 diabetes. Then in 2016, Dr. Unwin won the prestigious NHS Innovator of the Year Award for his work with diabetes patients. In 2017, his practice saved £57,000 on drugs for type 2 diabetes and hypertension and other conditions by offering patients a dietary alternative to medications. Also in 2018, Dr. Unwin was named the ninth most influential general practitioner in the UK by GP magazine Pulse. Moreover, he is a clinical expert in diabetes at Fellowship of the UK Royal College of General Practitioners. David, welcome. Hello, everybody, and hello, Patrick. I must admit, when I first came across your work, I had two reactions. One was tremendous relief. I've been trying to get the message across about low glycemic load, low-carb eating for 30 years, and here you were actually achieving a quantum leap in diabetes management at GP level. And my other, my other reaction was, why has this taken so long? So I'm interested both in what you actually recommend to your patients and how that works, but also as to how you've managed to initiate a paradigm shift in putting nutrition at the core of diabetes management. So let's start at the beginning. If you were my GP and you diagnosed me with diabetes or pre-diabetes, what would you say to me? I think I'd be talking really about blood sugar. I'd be explaining um, that diabetes is a condition where you struggle to deal with sugar so that in the blood, the blood sugar levels go higher. And that over time, it's a high blood sugar that does the damage. And in fact, it's a high blood sugar over time that damages the inside of your arteries. And so I hope as my patient, you'd quickly get the point that avoiding a high blood sugar uh, would be a good idea. And once you've got that idea, my next point is, well, we've, we, you and I have uh, two alternatives. Um, we could today start lifelong medication. I could start you on something called metformin, uh, which you could take for the rest of your life, but it has pros and cons, one of the cons being a possibility of diarrhea. Or, uh, if you're interested, you could work with me in really looking at where your blood sugar is coming from. You know, you, you've eaten your way into diabetes, is I, a thing I often say, and I ask patients, where do you think the sugar comes from in your diet? Because that's the first place to um, think about. And what I discover, if, if you treat it in that way, uh, which I've done now for eight years, do you know, I don't think a single patient has asked for the metformin, not one. That's amazing. I've, 
It is. Well, but then again, it isn't amazing, is it? Because mm-hmm. if, you know, if, if, if I would rather, yeah. taking, taking repeat medications makes you feel old. Yes. And, and, and there's a sort of last, lack of control. Um, really, for me, it, I have a sense of regret because I'm an older doctor. And so until I was 55 years old, this isn't how I treated diabetes. I would have said a completely different thing mm-hmm. in 2011. I would have said diabetes is a chronic deteriorating condition and I'm going to give you this medication that will help control it. But please don't be surprised if I need to increase the dose as the years go on. And I'd also be telling people, because it's chronic deteriorating, we will have to keep an eye on your retinas and your circulation to your feet. And that's such a depressing thing to say. How shocking. And now I'm talking about drug-free type 2 diabetes remission as something that patients can aim for. It's very, very positive. And I mean, there's even a sharper end of that. I mean, do you know how many amputations there are every year due to diabetes? <laughs> no, I don't. But perhaps, Patrick, you're going to tell us. It's pretty horrendous. Um, actually, I, I remember, I'm, I don't know the number, but I remember a, a man who actually was hospitalized for um, getting massively drunk and ill. Yes. And uh, his sort of cure was he was put in the ward where when he woke up, you know, feeling awful. Yeah. Uh, next to him, either side, were diabetics, you know, who'd had um, legs amputated. Yes. Um, as a consequence, well, you know. Patrick, I've had plenty of patients with that, and it is so upsetting. Mm. It's like pruning the roses, you know, but you start with a toe one toe and then and then several and then you take off the half of the foot and then they're left with a uh, that and then you take it mid up the shin and then up below the knee and then it's it's very serious it's really serious and yet for most patients it boils down to blood sugar so and I'm question of where okay, I want to do your diet. I don't want life, <laughs> lifelong medication. Um, but I'm, I'm new to this and uh, yeah. uh, I may need some support along the way. What are you going to tell me to actually do and how are you going to support me in doing it? Right. So the first thing is I've discovered in clinical practice that questions are more powerful than statements so that asking people things makes them think. So I'd be saying to you, Patrick, where do you think sugar comes from, you know, in your diet? And so some Pete, I had um, I had a builder recently and he said to me, well, I have three teaspoons of sugar in every tea or coffee throughout the day. So he said, I suppose I need to stop having sugar in tea and coffee. Mm-hmm. And actually for that particular person, that's all he did need to do. Mm-hmm. But then again, I have other people who are mystified because they say, well, I'm not an idiot. Um, I've I've cut the sugar out uh, of my diet because I know that you shouldn't have sugar. Mm -hmm. And this is the point, Patrick, that I had missed. The point Mm -hmm. that starch is sugar too. Mm -hmm. And that um, starchy carbohydrates like bread, potatoes, rice, breakfast cereals break down into surprising amounts of glucose. Just to give you an example, 150 grams of rice, boiled rice, will very likely affect your blood glucose to a similar extent as 10 teaspoons of sugar. 
And that single fact surprises people greatly. And it becomes pretty obvious that maybe you might eat something else instead of the boiled rice. Yes, and I, I suppose, go on, go on. Yeah, no, I've seen your charts because many people listening will, uh, because you know, they're, they're followers of my way of eating, are aware mm. of glycemic load, which is a very precise empirical thing that factors in both Yes. How fast the release of sugar is in a food, which is the glycemic index, the speed of release, if you like, the quality mm. of sugar. Uh, and the other is the quantity, how much of it you are eating, which results in a number. And in my particular approach, you want to have no more than 40 GLs or 10 with the main meal, five with a snack. But what was very um, clever about the way you did it, I believe your charts that I've seen, are also glycemic load, but instead of numbers, they talk teaspoons of sugar equivalent. Yeah, perhaps I, I'd like to explain that. So I became fascinated by the glycemic index and the glycemic load because I could see it was really important. And um, I realized I'd missed something. In fact, it, it began with the British Medical Journal. There was a piece in there and it said something about the glycemic index of bread, of white bread, is worse than sugar. And I was going to write a letter of complaint because I thought this must be wrong. But when I looked it up, it was actually correct. And that really led me to, to years of investigating and thinking about it. Mm. But I discovered that most doctors do not understand the glycemic index or the glycemic load. Mm -hmm. And if doctors don't, I don't think patients do either. Mm -hmm. And so I became fascinated. So the thing with general practice is you've only got 10 minutes to help your patient understand. So you've got to be quick. And I realized that the glycemic load uh, gives results in terms of grams of glucose. And there's two problems with that. My patients don't understand glucose as a substance. They don't cook with it. They don't know what it looks like. Mm -hmm. And they're not really familiar with grams. Mm -hmm. And so I needed to reinterpret the glycemic load in a way that my patients could understand. And they're absolutely familiar with teaspoons of sugar. Mm -hmm. So I got an expert on the, one of the originators, actually, of the, of the research 30 years ago, Jeffrey Leavesey. Mm -hmm. And I contacted him with my idea, and he was kind enough to redo the calculations for 800 foods in terms of teaspoons of sugar. So yeah, I've got all sorts of like a bowl of cornflakes without any sugar on it is equivalent to eight teaspoons of sugar, mm -hmm. which is amazing. And uh, there's been a lot of fuss about bananas, but a ripe banana is nearly equivalent to six teaspoons of sugar. And just getting back, Patrick, to the patient. So I'm saying to people, well, the good news is there are other tasty things that you can eat that mm -hmm. won't put up your blood sugar. And uh, so things, uh, protein-based foods, mm -hmm. so that might be eggs, might be cheese, might be fish or meat. And also uh, green vegetables, uh, above-ground green vegetables are another thing. Um, so that you could you could compare a breakfast of breakfast cereals with orange juice and a slice of toast comes out at somewhere about 20 teaspoons of sugar. Or you could have a three-egg cheese omelette uh, with a cup of coffee with cream in it, and that would be less than a teaspoon of sugar. And that's the basis of a lower 
carb diet. Um, and there are loads of tasty things people can eat. Um, I think the most important thing is that I want to help people enjoy their food so that I don't, I'm not setting them up to be punished for the rest of their lives. Now, um, just, and I, just go on. Two, two things in here. One is, do you, we'll talk about fats a bit in a minute and protein, but do you want people to have no more than a certain number of teaspoons of sugar or is it freewheeling? How do you get people yeah. to uh, right. control their carbs? Yes, I'm often asked that. And um, I try to not be prescriptive. Again, the more I tell you stuff, the less you think. So I explain to patients the sources of sugar in their diet. And then I ask them, well, what do you think might be the best thing to do about it? And then the second thing I offer is feedback because one of the things that underpins behavior change is feedback, knowing how you're doing. This is how, as we get older, we hopefully learn things. So that I, I offer to do a lot of blood tests for my patients so they know how they are doing. And if just giving up sugar in tea and coffee does the trick, and we get the diabetes under good control and the patient loses weight and feels great, I'm not going to be critical. Mm -hmm. uh, but most of them need to go beyond that. And um, in fact, most of my patients uh, would give up sugar altogether. That's one thing I would say, give up sugar totally. Added sugar. Yes, completely. Just wave goodbye to that because I find if you won't do that, Mm -hmm. I struggle to help. But beyond that, I'm, I spend a lot of time trying to help people understand where the sugar's coming from in their diet mm -hmm. and giving them feedback. And of, I, there's a, if anybody wants the diet sheet, it's been published and is freely accessible. So if you just Google Unwin and BMJ Nutrition, you'll see there's my latest paper which I've uh, arranged to be open access and the diet sheet I've been using for eight years is freely available to the public uh, on that uh, publication. I think the other thing is I want people to understand this isn't a diet. So if you're measuring things, it's a bit depressing. Mm -hmm. You know, getting out the, the weighing scales with every meal is not really like being part of family life. Mm. It sets you apart as weird. And, and so my patients, I don't, they're not weighing anything. I hardly ever mention that. And, and I mean, the, the results I get are very good on that. And I, I think I'm leaving people educated and able to care for themselves. Let's get on to the results um, in a minute. Now, sugar and carbs are quite addictive. Uh, do you offer any other support? You've mentioned the 10 oh, yeah. GP consultation. How oh, do we you, do. How do you yeah. help people make this transition? Right. So... Over the eight years, I've given a lot of attention to my failures and really thought about what could I do better? What, you know, was there anything I could have done on that case? And um, I'm very lucky because my wife, Jen, who is um, a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, started this journey with me. And it was Jen who pointed out that a lot of what we're doing is trying to bring about behavior change for patients and that 
that involves motivation. So that's part of feedback, isn't it? Because giving people feedback, if you do well, you think that's that's motivating. But also Jen pointed out that ongoing support is absolutely critical uh, to helping because the world is so obesogenic. Everywhere people are offering you biscuits and cakes. You're being invited to things. And, and uh, when you say you don't eat carbohydrates and you don't eat birthday cake, people give you a, an odd look. look. Yeah. So that we became interested in the psychological aspect. So the physiology is carbs break down into sugar. But then I think the psychology, the psychology of motivation, the psychology of support is absolutely key for ongoing success if you're going to run a clinic that year on year does better and gets better results. And as part of this, it's interesting, at the beginning, one of the problems we had was nobody believed in what we did. So in the partnership, I was senior partner and nominally the boss of the other partners, uh, and yet they didn't like what I did. They said that I should uh, stop seeing all these people with diabetes and concentrate on sick people with chest infections, that kind of thing, because they, they pointed out that I, I was not generating any, any income for the practice because we were not paid to do this work. Mm-hmm. And that made me hopping mad. I was furious, absolutely furious. Um, but they had got a point to an extent because I was using up valuable appointments and so it was Jen who said, well, why don't we do group consultations? Mm-hmm. Because uh, then we could treat 10, 20 people at a time and we, could, we started doing it on a Monday night mm-hmm. because the uh, waiting rooms were empty and Jen staffed it for free and the nurse worked for free and I worked for free. And we started these groups, these wonderful groups. Mm-hmm. which was inviting people and we learned from each other and that we we provided information but we were Jen and I started low carb with our patients back in uh, the end of 2012 the beginning of 2013 and it was a wonderfully collaborative experience um working with patients and that has uh, really carried on ever since and it, it's so very efficient so if I'm yeah, a patient of yours, can I join a group once a you week? You can, yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, what we, what we do now, uh, and unfortunately I can only do this for my own patients, we have Zoom meetings. So there's going to be one, a Christmas special tomorrow night. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got a, we usually have a guest speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's been a fascinating experience. Uh, this idea of collaborating with patients. Mm-hmm. And, and Jen talks a lot about Actually, patients are experts in themselves mm-hmm. and they know stuff about themselves. And, and again, if, you, if we're very prescriptive, we sometimes miss some of the, the gold that's there mm-hmm. in that, for instance, most people have maybe lost weight before. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting, how did you do it? What resources do you have? What did you learn when you lost weight before? because maybe you could do it again. Mm-hmm. And so uh, treating patients in a more equal way as adult to adult is better than what I was doing until 
2012, which was a bit adult to child, which is me telling you, Patrick, what to do. What, and I'd be saying, what you need to do is, and I see doctors doing that, and people shut down, really, and then they don't take responsibility for themselves. Mm-hmm. It becomes a collusion. Uh, I was a slightly lazy doctor, uh, and my patients were slightly lazy, and I just medicated them. And, now, and I regret that now. So I join your group. Is it free? Yes, of how course, because oh, I'm part of the NHS. So, yeah. How do you fund it? Because obviously you're giving your time and Jen's time. And Well, Jen and I have, in this case, Jen and I have done this for free for eight years because we love it. Yeah. And I, I must tell you, doctors all over the country are beginning to do the same because it's such fun. That's um, good. And Very good. It, 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 and also, we've proven that you get amazing results. So yeah, yeah. I'm now teaching other doctors all the time how to do this. And there's now an NHS app, a low-carb app uh, available. The world has changed a lot since I started. I mean, I was ridiculed mm. for what I was doing in 2013 mm. and shouted at. Um, it was an it made people angry. People were hopping mad because of what other doctors mm. uh, and other healthcare professionals were furious with me. How many are there out there now, uh, you know, uh, employing this kind of approach to some extent? Hundreds. Hundreds. In the UK, hundreds. It's such a delight. I, tell- I know there are hundreds because yeah. uh, I run a private doctors-only Google group mm-hmm. Only for doctors, and we've got 450. Or another point mm. is I did um, a Royal College of General Practitioners training module. Uh, it takes 30 minutes, and over 2,000 GPs have done that training module. Yeah, that's fantastic. How many GPs are there in the UK? Oh, there's rather a lot, though. There's 50,000, so I've <laughs> got now, a few to go. If I go to a GP and I'm diagnosed with diabetes and they're rather yeah. dis- dismissive of diet, you know, eat a well-balanced diet or mm. less fat or whatever, uh, how can I get referred to someone like you? Well, you can't, Yeah, really. That's the problem. Yeah. And um, uh, that is the, 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 the problem. But there are many things that I would say there's some wonderful resources online. Wonderful resources online. I mean, I actually learned a lot of what I know now mm-hmm. from um, the low-carb forum on diabetes.co.uk. Yes, I think is. there were 70,000 people on there teaching each other, and they helped teach me. No, it's, it's quite fantastic. I want to tell you, in 1980... There was a yeah. seminal meeting of three people. That is myself and a man called Dr. Stephen Davies and um, Jeffrey Cannon. And Jeffrey Cannon wrote many pioneering books. Uh, one was The Food Scandal, another was Superbugs, another was Dieting Makes You Fat. Uh, fantastic uh, journalist and pioneer. And Dr. Stephen Davies uh, started the whole movement of nutritional medicine as the Journal of Nutritional Medicine. He started BioLab, which is one of the best uh, nutritional labs, and uh, wrote a very good book, Nutritional Medicine. And essentially, the conversation went like this. We all recognized that it was diet, in essence, that was driving all these modern diseases. 
And Jeffrey Cannon said, nothing's going to change until we can change the system. You know, we've got to get in high up in sort of government policy, etc. And he went off to do that. And Stephen Davies said, this is good medicine. This is evidence-based medicine. And therefore, this is what doctors should be doing. Um, my view was slightly different. I thought that it might not happen so easily within medicine. Doctors have got so much to learn. You know, genetics is coming in and everything else. And I said, maybe what we need actually is a parallel profession, nutritional therapists, who could be really expert, not only in the nutrition, but also in the behavior change, working with doctors. And we've got, I think, about 10,000 now um, throughout the UK. And that was the sort of pattern of things. But what I love uh, is that you have actually managed to get through to doctors in this one area. We're not going to talk about other areas of nutrition today mm -hmm. because obviously it's a vast smorgasbord. Uh, but you have managed to get through to something which is going to save an extraordinary amount of lives and suffering mm -hmm. and, of course, money, the NHS. How much do you actually save the NHS in your practice? At the moment, it, it's it's fifty thousand pounds per year that we spend less on drugs for diabetes alone mm -hmm. um, every year, less than is average for our area. So we're the cheapest of all the. There are seventeen GP practices in in our group, and my practice is the cheapest of all of those. And we save fifty thousand pounds a year. We're also saving on other drugs, big blood pressure, and 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 so on. Just to get back to the point you were making before, Patrick, one of the I don't think I'm going to take all the credit for that. I think the other thing is social media is really helping because for the first time in history, what we've got now is a grassroots revolution where intelligent people are finding out how to help themselves. Mm -hmm. And a lot of doctors are learning from patients. And in fact, I, you know, I began with a single patient who taught me. And um, uh, she was cross with me because I would just prescribe metformin for years. And, and she, one day she came in to put me right. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I listened to her. And I think one or two doctors throughout the land have been put right by patients who said, look, I'll, I've just put my diabetes into remission and I haven't I haven't taken any medication for months. Mm -hmm. And I, that's happening again and again. And social media, I think, you know, if you, if you want to make change, the thing to do is band together with other people with shared mm -hmm. goals. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, this is new, the idea of social media. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say, Patrick, is you actually helped me significantly. Years ago, um, I can't remember how this was, but you mentioned the word paradigm. Mm -hmm. And you said, of course, doctors have got the wrong paradigm. And at that point, I'd never actually heard the word paradigm. And I use it all the time now. And I heard you use it earlier before. And you're absolutely right. Uh, I thought about what you said. And it was so true that for me, the paradigm up until this had been uh, investigate patients to find out what's wrong and then very broadly um, medicate them, use medications. And the new paradigm that fascinates me now is can we find the true causes of illness? Mm -hmm. Why is my patient ill? And I, 
I wasn't asking that question. And I think a lot of doctors, we see ourselves as scientists, but we're not really. Mm-hmm. If you're a scientist, you should be saying, why? What's the real cause of diabetes or high blood pressure? Because it certainly isn't an absence of metformin. Mm-hmm. It's not the metformin gland that's packed up as a reason for your diabetes. Mm-hmm. Something else has happened. So metformin is just a sticking plaster. And, and uh, you deserve some thanks, Patrick. It was you that I really thought about what you said slowly mm-hmm. for a year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the, the, we, in part, medicine has the wrong paradigm for many of the illnesses that we deal with. And also, I think, really, um, no model of health. <laughs> you know, no. we talk about evidence-based medicine and rely on our very nice randomized controlled trials. But if you ask what, what actually is health, what's yes. my model of health? Uh, it is interesting. Anyway, I'll tell you one other thing. I've often thought about the true causes of disease, you know, lying in a nice hot bath or something. And it, it, it seems to boil down to me to two things only pretty much one ignorance and the other Mm -hmm. addiction um that might be uh, well you mentioned the word addiction before and actually i made a little note to come back to that yeah Uh, because if you remember i was talking about cases that i was disappointed with Mm -hmm. and um there was a, a number of those and i began to see that the behaviors I was seeing were, these were people who were really struggling uh, to take my advice. And they'd manage it for a while, but then they'd come back heavier, mm. gaining and gaining weight and, and so on. And they, were, they'd had, they, they knew that being overweight wasn't healthy and they uh, knew that their diet was wrong. And yet they failed to change behavior. And I realized that they had something in common with other groups of patients of mine, people with alcohol problems. So a lot of people with an alcohol problem will tell you, I don't particularly enjoy alcohol, but I can't live without it. And I found that exactly that was the experience of some people who were very heavy. Mm -hmm. And I remember one person telling me, uh, she said, I have never told a living soul but my problem is bread. Mm-hmm. And um, she said, I, you know, if I eat one slice, I'll eat a whole loaf. I can't mm-hmm. stop. Mm-hmm. And that uh, I came to understand that there are people out there who are addicted to other things. And it may not be alcohol and it, it, it may not be nicotine. Mm-hmm. It might be bread. Mm-hmm. Or I've come, I've come across people and it's cornflakes. Mm-hmm. Packets and packets of cornflakes. And so the, I think addiction, food addiction, is an interesting thing to look at. And again, there are doctors who think this doesn't exist mm-hmm. uh, and refuse to admit that food addiction is a problem. But I, I find in clinical practice it's real mm-hmm. and that people need help with it. And we, we've had one or two very significant um, cases. Some of the biggest weight losses in the practice have been people whose problem uh, was food addiction. Um, and when we got to that, we, we got some of our best results. Well, I was rather 
scathing is probably the wrong word, but uh, because I was getting such good results with eating 40 GLs a day, you know, basically um, eating little and often and very, very controlled carbohydrates, I sort of thought, why bother doing the kind of no-carb, high-fat type approach? And challenged Jerome Byrne, and that led to a whole book, The Hybrid Diet, where we looked at these two ways of eating, if you like, and one the more extreme no carbs running on ketones, the other running on glucose. Mm-hmm. But what, what I certainly became aware of is that uh, my low GL approach for somebody maybe diabetic, maybe significantly overweight, and maybe addicted in some way to carbohydrates is a bit like saying to an alcoholic, it's absolutely fine. You just have a glass of wine a day, you know, a small one. It's absolutely yeah. fine. Patrick, and, absolutely. You know, yeah. And for some and that's people, exactly what I yeah. suddenly dawned on me because I had decades of experience with people with alcohol problems. And actually, the only thing you can do, you must stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, patients with an alcohol um, problem would often say, you know, can I do controlled drinking? Mm-hmm. And I, I really, not many people with an alcohol problem can do that. You have to stop. Moderation, you know, it's like saying Doesn't half work. a cigarette. Yeah. Um, it doesn't work. Uh, and um, I think the other thing is that, that there are people who can do moderation. So if you're a healthcare professional who can just have a tiny piece of cake, you, you're not very sympathetic to people mm-hmm. who can't do that. Yeah. And I mean, bully for you if you can have a small amount of cake, but we really have to be sympathetic and understanding to the people who cannot do that. And it, it leads to all sorts of behaviors um, in terms of binging and eating lots and lots. Uh, but if they can give up, uh, so much better. What you don't find, I, I never met a patient who was bin- binging on packs of butter, mm-hmm. for instance, or mm-hmm. binging on steak. Mm-hmm. Or that in clinical practice, that's not a problem I've, uh, I've had. So, yes, it's just interesting is the idea of moderation. It's a strange, what does that mean? It's a strange <laughs> thing because we have found very often that the two binge foods, and I'm talking here sometimes in bulimics, mm-hmm. the two most common binge foods do tend to be wheat and milk. And I was very interested in Professor Paul Kenny's research at Mount Sinai Hospital in, uh, mm-hmm. in New York who fed one group of rats nothing but carbs. They gained weight. But, you know, not outrageously because they, they had enough sugar and they stopped. And the other group were fed nothing but fat. And they also gained weight uh, and would sort of reach satiety. And then um, he fed another group, well, probably the same rats, half sugar, um, half carbs and um, half fat. And you don't really see that uh, in nature. It just doesn't mm. occur. That's really no. junk food. And they became addicted and they just couldn't stop mm. eating. But there was something else which is not fully explored by him, which he wasn't feeding them half carbs, half fat, uh, when he was, but he was uh, also feeding them um, dairy products. It was cheesecake. And yeah. there's something very interesting about that because milk is one of the very few foods that does actually contain carbs and fat. And we know for total evolutionary reasons it's addictive. I mean, that baby needs to latch onto the breast, you know, and, and, and sort of behave like a... Well, 
Patrick, just yeah. to develop that, what an interesting observation. Uh, I want to tell you uh, something else, that uh, I had a, a, a patient with really terrible, terrible constipation, awful constipation, and we thought he had cancer because his bowels just weren't working. And of course, he had sigmoidoscopy and so on and so forth. And at the very end, it was cheese. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, part of the protein in cheese is a morphine-like substance. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a paper on this. And one of the side effects of morphine is to stop your bowel. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, of course, you want babies to be desperate for milk. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. There are people who um, dairy products... Uh, and in fact, my wife is one of them. She had to give up. If she doesn't give up dairy, she cannot control her weight. She absolutely can't. Mm -hmm. And she's learned the hard way uh, that cheese has had to go. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, there is, there's, a, there's some interesting papers on, I forget what the morphine-like substances in cheese are called. Anyway, morphines. Yes, they are. That's yeah. right, caseomorphines. And as I say, the... It was so important for this particular patient because his life was absolutely ruined. Yes, well, uh, constipation, you laugh about it, but it's actually clinically not funny. Uh, and he, he was in considerable pain. Mm -hmm. And I was giving him every drug I could think of um, to sort this out. And the whole thing uh, was, was uh, cheese. He could have cream yes. uh, because there's less protein in that. But he absolutely... A small amount of uh, cheese is catastrophic. So you've you've taken us on a, a different sidetrack. We've gone off piece there, but still. Well, let's get back on piece. And I want to ask you two questions, one which probably feeds into the other. At the beginning, you said you give your patients feedback and you run tests. And that made me think yes. you're probably measuring HbA1c and may need to explain that. I am, and yeah. And the second question, which may feed on from that, is what actually are your results? And since it is the new year and people will have gained some weight over the festive season, mm -hmm. uh, not just in terms of diabetes, but also weight and anything else you want to mention. So how do you give okay. feedback and what are your results? Right. So the feedback, um, what do we measure? Start with simple things. I mean, what? I, you can get a lot of feedback by looking at your waist-to-height ratio. So um, uh, I encourage my patients to honestly measure their belly at its fattest. Uh, so many blokes have got a belt, haven't they, which is under the tummy. Mm -hmm. And they tell me they've got a waist of 32 inches. Um, and then really, that isn't true. That's not true because as I get them to and I demonstrate, we measure their waist at its fattest and you should aim to have your waist as less than half your height mm -hmm. for health. So that's a simple thing and that gives you feedback. Mm -hmm. So you can get a bit of string and mm -hmm. you can sort out how big it is in the new year mm -hmm. and uh, that, then you can get feedback because is, if the string is um, enormous in two months' time, you're doing rather well. Mm -hmm. 
That's a simple thing. But hemoglobin A1C is a blood test I do. And the hemoglobin A1C, very important in diabetes, it gives you an idea of how sugary has your blood been in the preceding three months. Mm-hmm. So it, it, we used to just do a blood sugar. But of course, then what a patient does is they just don't eat Mars bars in the day before they go for the blood test. Yes. And then we haven't found out what's gone on. So the hemoglobin A1C is rather cleverer than that because it gives an average idea of how sugary have you been. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I do that for my patients. And most people with type 2 diabetes know that that's what the doctor measures. There's other things as well. I'm quite interested in liver function mm-hmm. because one of the things uh, that happens is uh, the hormone insulin pushes excess sugar into your liver. And now we have an epidemic of uh, fatty liver. So 20% of the whole of the developed world now has a fatty liver, 20% of all my patients. And for that reason, they have abnormal liver function tests, blood tests on the liver. So I also monitor liver function. And then, of course, um, I'm interested in the, in the lipid profiles, the cholesterol, the different types of cholesterol. Uh, as part of that is a triglyceride, so I'm doing triglyceride mm-hmm. as well. And of course, weight. So there's weight, waste, those various... Um, and triglycerides is basically blood fat. So if you're dumping sugar, excess sugar, into the liver, uh, which can spill out and make fatty liver, it also means that you'll, that fat made from the sugar is going to be in your yeah. blood as triglycerides. Exactly, Patrick. And I think what I had... Uh, I wasn't aware really was. I used to think that fat on your belly had come from fat you'd eaten. Mm-hmm. Um, when actually um, it may well have come from carbohydrate you ate because insulin pushes excess glucose into fat cells and mm-hmm. those fat cells turn it into fat and the liver does that as well and some of it leaks into the bloodstream. And what's interesting is just going on to you ask me about my actual results. So, um, and some of these, as I say, have been published very recently in BMJ Nutrition. So you can uh, see them for yourself there. Um, these are That particular paper is the six-year results, the results of what we achieved in the six years. So if I remember rightly, I think the average patient lost about nine kilos in weight. That was the average weight loss. The greatest weight loss we've had has been nine Nine stone. Wow. Uh, that's the great, greatest so, weight loss we've Over had. what period of time? That took about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. I've got another young man at the moment, and he's, he's racing, really. He, we've got eight stone in a year, mm-hmm. uh, and he wants to be my, my, my biggest loser, which we'll see how he does. He's coming mm-hmm. on really, really well. So the, but the average loss was, um, um, was, was nine kilos. Mm-hmm. This is for the, this particular cohort. I think there was about 150 people with type 2 diabetes, something like that. There's more now, but at that time it was 150. What's interesting is that these were people who'd been low carb for an average of two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and their hemoglobin A1C uh, had gone down from an average of something like 65, which is very poor control of diabetes to 49, which is hardly diabetic. 
So we were getting actually nearly 50% of my patients into drug-free type 2 diabetes remission. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a normal blood sugar without drugs. Nearly half of them, 40, I think at that stage, 46% of the patients achieved that. But the surprise was that most of my patients are having more fat in their diet, but the, the lipid profiles improved significantly. I wanted to ask so you about the cholesterol. That. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because uh, you know the conventional dietetic advice. Uh, I mean, I, I had a, a, I was treating a, a diabetic, and they'd been told by the dietitian, "Don't drink Coke. Drink, you know, drink Diet Coke, and don't eat nuts." Uh, she loved nuts because they're high in fat. Yeah. Uh, you know, is that sort of uh, advice? Less calories and low fat. Uh, so, yes, what's your take on fat? What's my take on fat? Right. Well, I've, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, most, the average person with type 2 diabetes in my practice weighs about 100 kilos. They're heavy people. They're mm. nearly 17 stone. Mm -hmm. And uh, most, the problem is they, they have a lot of fat on board. Mm -hmm. One of the benefits of going low carb is you become metabolically a fat burner. And so those people start burning off their own fat. And in fact, one of the things they notice is because they're a fat burner, they say it's weird because I'm not hungry for the first time in decades. And so um, you were asking me about dietary fat. Mm -hmm. Well, it's one of the good things, it's satiating, so you don't eat that much of it. thing is, I want them to enjoy their meals. So what we actually do is talk about meals they may enjoy. So I'd say to you, well, let's start, let's base your meal on protein. So what, what protein are you going to enjoy? And so you could base the meal on a steak or um, fish, or eggs, or cheese, or whatever. And then I'd say, uh, what green veg are you going to have uh, with your protein? And then finally, maybe we're going to add a fatty sauce to that, like a cream sauce or a full-fat mayo, to make it tasty. And, and that, for me, is a, is a balanced meal. And... Um, I would allow some butter on that. You could put butter on your broccoli, for instance. And would you say for yourself, uh, you know, tasty meals, are there some sort of standards that both you eat? If you're not eating bread, pasta, rice, and yeah. so on, are there some sort of standard fullbacks that have become your yes. favorite meals? And also, yes, there are. Yeah. What are they? Well, so basically, I often say, Turn the, turn the white stuff green mm -hmm. so that instead of, having, um, instead of having rice or potatoes or bread, uh, consider having three lots of green veg mm -hmm. with your protein or in, uh, enjoy a curry. But could you consider having, I mean, we have a lot of cauliflower rice, mm -hmm. which can be delicious, absolutely delicious. If you add herbs and spices to it, we have friends who would prefer that to ordinary rice. So those are the sort of things we uh, do a lot. Um, but my average meal would be, what's my protein? And 
lots of different types of, of, of green veg, I'd say. And that's most of our meals. And also, we don't have as many meals. So I'd also say to people, don't eat as often mm-hmm. um, because every meal stimulates insulin a little. Mm-hmm. And insulin is partly uh, part of hunger. Mm-hmm. And so that's um, another thing I tend to avoid. I tend to avoid snacks. You use, uh, I mean, there are some wonderful low-carb recipe books and they tend to use things like almond flour mm-hmm. or coconut flour in, instead of flour. Mm-hmm. What are your favorite recipe books to support what you're doing? Thank you. Well, <laughs> the favorite recipe books are, um, I suppose, it, this seems like a dreadful, uh, shameless plug. Just do it, they're the, please. They're the, they're the Caldizi recipe books, mm-hmm. and there are three of them. And in fact, the Caldizis, uh, he is a chef in London who has reversed his type 2 diabetes and um, so had a real commitment to improving the world of food, but he also had the skill, or particularly his wife, Kate, had the skill to produce the most delicious recipes. Mm-hmm. And so we've actually helped the Caldizis do these three recipe books. And I should say, in exchange for a donation to our favorite charity, which in my case is the Public Health Collaboration. Mm-hmm. So we haven't been paid for anything and we don't make anything on the books, uh, but they do donate to the Public Health collaboration and in fact um there's a there's a third recipe book coming out in uh, in march so i like the um the caldizi ones excellent uh, ali houston as well there's somebody called ali houston a young chef and he he's written a book for trying to make it cheap trying to do how can you do low carb on a budget mm-hmm. so i rather like ali houston's book as well mm-hmm. Well, there's a tremendous need for this. I mean, since you've plugged a book, I've got one, <laughs> the Low GL Diet Cookbook. But it's, it's actually Great. my best-selling book because people want practical information on how to make simple foods quite delicious. And as you say, you should never leave a meal um, feeling hungry. And you can yeah. eat low-carb very, very well if you, need, if you know what to do. Now, quick question. What other diseases in your clinical practice have responded to this kind of diet? You know, I'm adding to this list all the time, so this might take me a while. Certainly high blood pressure. And, and a year ago, there's another paper. If you Google unwind and hypertension, you'll find a, a paper I wrote with a professor of cardiology from uh, Glasgow University. On, so certainly blood pressure improves significantly. And uh, on average, 20% of all the drugs I'm, people are taking for high blood pressure, I'm taking them off when they go low carb because of blood mm-hmm. pressure. In fact, I saw somebody only yesterday, his blood pressure had been 180 over 100. And within a month of going low carb, it came down to 135 over 75. And, and I see that. So blood pressure, definitely. Fatty liver, I've already mentioned. Uh, that's another one. Polycystic ovarian disease, I've seen periods restart for people. Um, what else? Various inflammation, uh, particularly irritable bowel syndrome, which I used to just give uh, sticking plaster drugs. The number of people who have a dietary cause to their irritable bowel syndrome is quite high. 
I expect you'd agree, would you, Patrick? I think it, uh, very Absolutely. often it'll turn out it turn out to be wheat or eggs or something. It's the first. Uh, I mean, when, when you have a when you have a digestive system disorder, you know, it's it's not illogical to think no, it might it have something to do with what yes. you're putting in. Your uh, and uh, very many patients have, you know, wonder about things, and I'd say, well, give it a go, and 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 um, and. and and see, but if you're going to come off wheat, you have to come off it completely mm-hmm. for a couple of weeks. And then there's a whole lot of skin conditions improve. I've seen acne in some teenagers, really. So I've had one or two teenagers who came to me with obesity, and then we've given up bread and gone low carb, and then they've been delighted when their skin has cleared up. I've seen some really dramatic improvements in uh, that. I've seen, um, what else? I've seen rosacea improve. I've seen uh, psoriasis improve, uh, which I didn't, uh, not always, but I've had one or two real improvements in psoriasis, which I, I was really surprised by that. And then there's a whole lot of mental problems as well. Um, some people feel less anxious and I've, I've got one or two patients who have been able to come off antidepressants after many, many years. Um, and uh, certainly these same people tell me if they cheat and have sugar, you know, within an hour they start feeling anxious and that anxiety can go on for two days. Mm-hmm. Uh, they say it's like having a policeman in your head that doesn't let them have sugar because once you're off it, they say it's so wonderful to feel calm. Um, so less hunger, less weight, uh, blood less anxiety, control, and then lower, uh, and lower less joint pain, as well as quite a lot of people who yeah. had. And, but I never know is has, is it that the inflammation's diminished, mm-hmm. and that's why your knees feel so much better, or is it that you've lost three stone weight. in weight? Yes, um, I, a bit difficult to say, but I, I think there's a lot in this topic of becoming inflamed. So, um, and I suppose that would go on. Yeah. So, just to wind up, what is your vision for the future? At what point would you know your work is done? <laughs> oh, goodness. so it, this is like a wish list, isn't it? What would I have? Right. My wish list. My wish list. I just wish everybody would eat real food. Mm-hmm. I wish they'd start with ingredients and make stuff and eat it and stop eating out of packets. Um, I, I, the whole, I'm so sorry to see the whole obesity epidemic and I'd love to see that put into reverse. And I think eating lots of uh, locally sourced protein, locally sourced green veg in large quantities, and um, that would make such a difference to health. And, and when I think about, oh, is it 50% perhaps of all the people I am seeing who are ill don't need to be ill? How terrible is that? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'd, I'd love a world uh, where um, uh, the diabetes and obesity and all of these things uh, were shrinking away instead of, instead of growing. But I think we'd do it by as I say, uh, having a diet, eating basically real food and avoiding packets of this, that and the other. 
And finally, I once saw it uh, uh, described, this is our lovely NHS, as the fastest growing failing business in the sense that we're having <laughs> more and more disease. And yes. do you think it will continue to be so until we put nutrition as a primary cause of disease and tackle that first rather than as a very poor cousin afterthought, if at all? Yes. <laughs> That's my simple answer, yes. I've come to that. I've come to that. You know, we're, I'm, we're medicating people uh, endlessly and then we're giving them a drug for the side effect of the drug and then another one and another one. And, and it was all the time we're going away from the true causes of illness. And until we address actually why you are ill, uh, it's very difficult to believe um, that we're going to make progress. But there is um, huge pressures on doctors uh, in their 10-minute appointments, huge expectations and pressure. And it's a really, it's a huge ask. And um, a lot of doctors are tired and exhausted. And the COVID has made things worse, really. And um, that's why I, I think I'm slightly more optimistic about the grassroots revolution mm -hmm. where interested people. And then yeah, I always find that one member of a family teaches another and another and another. Mm -hmm. And it grows. And I'm more optimistic about the grassroots revolution than I am about uh, medicine. Mm -hmm. Although the, the, there is the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine, I think they're good. They're, yes. These are doctors, young, many of them young doctors, who are looking for this new paradigm we were talking about before. And David, I would have one request. There are 10,000 nutritional therapists out there, and somehow we all get siloed, if you see what I mean. Um, I go to some of these conferences, and, and doctors are speaking, and but this. You know, there are these large groups of people who are really saying the same thing. I would very they much, are, yes. very I much agree. like and to see them brought together. I, I, I agree. And, and nutritionists know a lot. Mm. They really do. And, and um, I think the other thing is, if you, you, I'd have a plea perhaps for humility about if you don't know stuff, it's best to say. And, and uh, my life, I've been humbled so many times. And I... I think that's the difficulty. Sometimes experts don't don't like to admit what they don't know. Yeah. And, and nutritionists probably know more about nutrition than most doctors. Now, we've run out of time. It's been really fun talking to you. Um, very inspiring. It's a perfect way to start the new year. Everybody out there, um, pay attention. Eat real food. Uh, eat less carbs. Yeah. Gain your well, energy. I, lose your weight. Patrick, I need to give a quick medical thing, you know. Yes. And we, we must it. say for safety, this is a safety thing. If you're on prescribed medication from your doctor, please don't feel you can change your diet massively without just checking. And that's because some of the drugs for diabetes particularly, uh, there is a danger of having a low blood glucose if you suddenly cut your carbs. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to make a, a a big change. You just need to discuss it with your doctor if you are on prescribed medication, particularly for diabetes. That's the uh, the disclaimer there. Thank you very much. It's been fantastic <laughs> uh, talking with you. I wish you a very happy, healthy, and successful and transforming 2021. Thank you, Dave. Patrick. Patrick, thank you. And to all the listeners, thank you. <laughs>